Hello, and welcome to Suite 212 Extra, our podcast-only strand of Suite 212, for anything that doesn't fit into our Resonance 104.4 FM slot for whatever reason. This programme follows on from our previous edition about art and politics in Ukraine, which was recorded at the Azoliatsia platform for cultural initiatives in Kiev. It's a transcontinental show this time, conducted via Skype between London and Bishkek. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, talking to two friends and comrades, Georgi Mamadov and Mahira Siarkalova, who are both communist and LGBT activists in Bishkek, about art and politics in Kyrgyzstan. Georgi and Mahira, welcome to the show. Hello, Juliet. <laughs> Hi there. As the culture, history and politics of Kyrgyzstan and the wider Central Asian region are not particularly well understood in the UK, I'll start with a quick introduction. The area that's now known as Kyrgyzstan, or the Kyrgyz Republic, was historically divided and passed between the Mongol, Manchurian and Uzbek empires before the ruling Qing dynasty in China ceded what's now eastern Kyrgyzstan to the Russian Empire in 1876. This process is detailed in Sadiq Sher Niaz's epic 19, uh, 2014 film Kermanjan Datka, Queen of the Mountains, about the life of the stateswoman who acquiesced to the annexation under duress. There were many revolts against Cyrus' rule, culminating in the 1916 rebellion, when Muslims who had been formally exempted from military service on the Eastern Front during World War I were conscripted. Many Kyrgyz and Kazakh people went to China after the revolt was suppressed, and the number of casualties was disputed. Russian sources put it at 3,000, Kyrgyz historians estimated between 100,000 and 270,000. Order had not really been restored before the February Revolution of 1917 brought down Nicholas II, but it was the October Revolution of that year that really changed the face of the region, with the creation of the territory of Kyrgyzia and the new regime rapidly beginning to industrialise and urbanise what had previously been a largely rural population. Soviet power was established in what had been Russian Turkestan in 1919, although the Kyrgyz Soviet Socialist Republic was not declared until December 1936, when the Central Asian region was broken up into what later became Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Russian, with the Cyrillic script, was imposed as a standard literary language during the 1930s. That remains more widely spoken in Bishkek. Outside of the city, Kyrgyz is more widely spoken, and it's used as the exclusive language of the Kyrgyz parliament. The Soviet regime decided to make Pishpek, as the city was previously called, into the capital, renaming it Frunza after the Red Army General and Russian Civil War commander Mikhail Frunza, who grew up in the city, rather than using the ancient settlement of Osh, which was populated largely by Uzbeks. The experiences of Kyrgyzia during the Soviet period were quite different to those of our last case study in Ukraine. The effects of Stalin's purges were not felt as strongly here as they were further west, and while there were famines across Central Asia, there were no disasters in Kyrgyzia on the scale of the Holodomor or Chernobyl. In fact, much of contemporary Bishkek was built in the 1970s and 1980s, and when Mikhail Gorbachev called a re referendum to save the Soviet Union in 1991, 90% of Kyrgyz citizens voted to stay. There's more nostalgia for the USSR here than in certain other parts of the former Union, partly because an economic collapse after 1991 
was followed by two revolutions in 2005 and 2010, the latter of which overthrew the autocratic president Kermanbek Bakiev and led to around 500 deaths in racially motivated clashes on the Uzbek border, as well as more than 100 deaths in Bishkek. The Bakiev regime was notoriously corrupt, characterised by assassinations and organised crime. Since its collapse, Kyrgyzstan has become more democratic, or at least more so than its Central Asian neighbours. That said, under Almazbek Atambay of Social Democratic Party, certain journalists and political opponents of Atambay were imprisoned or exiled. One of those who was imprisoned was the Uzbek community leader Azimyon Askarov. And like a number of ex-Soviet republics, Kyrgyzstan has been unsure whether to orient its politics towards the US, the EU or the Russian Federation, and the country's LGBTQI population has been caught in the middle. In 2014, the Kyrgyz parliament debated a copy of the Russian propaganda law, which passed two readings in the Chamber of Deputies and has had a chilling effect on Kyrgyz LGBTQI people and organisations, even though it never completed its passage into law. The bill's sponsors were not returned to Parliament in the most recent election last year, in which the ruling Social Democratic Party held on to power with a new president, Surinbai Jeanbekov. I have visited Kyrgyzstan twice, once in October 2014 with the free speech organisation Penn International, whose annual congress was being held that year in Bishkek, where I spoke on a panel about LGBTQI freedom of expression with the Russian writer Masha Gessen and the Kyrgyz writer and activist Sianat Sultanalieva. I returned earlier this year for an event at the American University of Central Asia about queer speculative fiction, which Georgie Mamadov hosted, and where I read a piece of historical fiction called The Woman in the Portrait, and Mahira read her contribution to a recent anthology of queer science fiction called Utterly Other in the English translation. She read her story called A New Life on Monday. So Georgie, Mahira, it's a pleasure to have you both on the show. So I'd like to just start by asking you both about the cultural legacy of Soviet communism in Kyrgyzstan. I know you've both kind of thought and talked and written extensively about this. So if I could start by asking how influential was the Soviet avant-garde of the 1920s or what's now Bishkek given the distance from Moscow, Leningrad, Kiev, the other prominent centres of activity? What happened locally? I think there are many interesting things were happening in um, Kyrgyzstan or in Bishkek, Frunze in the 1920s, but probably they were not necessarily connected with art always visual art in particular, like there was an interesting movement of Czechoslovakian communists to Pishpek and then Frunze and establishing uh, a commune known as Interhelpo, Intergelpo, which means mutual help in uh, Ida, a version of Esperanto. But in terms of organized avant-garde visual culture, things came later, like in the late 1920s, early 1930s. Like in the 1930s, there was the first artistic organization called, I forgot how it was called actually, but it was uh, Association of Revolutionary Artists of Kyrgyzia, I think, established under the leadership of Vladimir Abrastsov, an artist who was residing in Bishkek, who came here from Tashkent, and who had very strong political inclinations and uh, tried to come up with artistic forms that would be revolutionary, but at the same time be sensitive locally. So he was 
one of the first artists who visualized events of the 1916 uprising, which was a very important political and historical event. And it was especially placed in the center of sort of building Soviet Kyrgyz identity in the 1920s, 1930s. So Abrasov went with the historians, ethnographers to the sites of uprising. And then his this, this expeditions resulted in a series of works, which are still very impressive. I mean, I wondered if you could maybe expand on the works of Semen Chukov and Gapar Atiev, who I know were sort of two of the more influential 1930s Kyrgyz painters. Yeah, Semen Chukov is a very interesting character. He was born in Ishpia to a family of Clark in the colonial administration, and his mother was not even educated and worked as a laundry and cleaning lady. So he was very poor. At some point, his parents uh, divorced, and his father moved to Vierney, which is now Almaty. So he spent his time in between Vierney and Pishpek in like 1910, 1917. And it is in Vierney where he started taking classes in visual arts from an interesting character as well, Hludov, who was also a colonial administrator, but also some sort of amateur artist who produced a lot of sort of colonial, very orientalist uh, images of Kazakh life. So Chikov was then trained in this very colonial tradition. I mean, he took class, he was a Hludov student. But when he started, first he went to Tashkent, where he spent one year, and then he moved to Moscow, where he studied in Futimas. And then late 1920s, he started taking part in big exhibitions and immediately attracted attention of the critics exactly for being not exoticizing or for being not external producer of images from Central Asia and from Kyrgyzstan in particular. Critics immediately noticed that he offers a more intimate, internally informed view of Kyrgyzstan which is deprived of exotization, which was very important for the early Soviet politics, cultural politics, sort of to avoid the imperial legacy of narratives and imageries of the Central Asian territories of the Russian Empire. How was Kyrgyzia and maybe the rest of Central Asia characterized and treated by the, the Soviet regime? Why was it important for the Soviets, for Central Asia to be part of the USSR? I think for, for Bolsheviks, the question was that as many territories as possible should join the new state, the, the Soviet Union. So I don't think that they really debated whether anyone should leave. I mean, there were cases of Poland, Finland, some parts of Western Ukraine and Belarus became part of independent states. But I think in terms of central, I mean, there was an interesting debate. For instance, uh, Lenin himself and Bolsheviks in Moscow were very hesitant about expanding revolution to Hiva and Bukhara at least in 1917-1918. So they didn't think that it was necessary because uh, before the revolution, under the Russian rule, these, these states, they had the status of uh, protectorates. So they were formally independent. So there was this internal debate between the communists or Bolsheviks in Turkestan who advocated for expanding the revolution and also the local communists in Bukhara and Hiva, who really wanted and called for the help of the Bolsheviks uh, in Turkestan, sort of hesitant position on the side of the of the mosque of Moscow, who didn't want to complicate things. But you see, the politics shifted so 
quickly and so rapidly that by, let's say, end of the 1919, everything changed. Like the territory of Kyrgyzstan acquired its political status in 1924 during the first attempt of delimitation. It became an autonomous oblast, an autonomous region within the Russian Federation. And then for the coming 12 years, for, let's say, Kyrgyz Bolsheviks, the political task was to acquire the status of the full-fledged Soviet Republic, which was achieved in 1936. And there was a lot of the cultural kind of Russification that Stalin carried out throughout the, the Union happened after 1936, right? Yeah, so originally in the earlier Soviet period, there was this policy of granting the formerly colonized people of this, uh, the Russian Empire autonomy in the different shapes. They could become a, an autonomous region or an, uh, an autonomous republic or uh, it's, it's a member of the Union, one of the republics. So apart from this delimitation process, the granting of the territorial autonomy, there was also this policy of karinizatsa, which meant indigenization, which basically meant also granting cultural rights. So there was this theory of the gradual development from you know tribal feudal system into full-fledged nationhood as a prerequisite for socialist development. It was seen as a kind of a necessary step in this progression that the people of these republics then can also gain ability to speak in their own languages. So, so they would learn to speak Bolshevik, so to speak. There's a scholar, Sleskin, who, who talks about like double assimilation process, right? So first they had to become a national before they could become Soviet. So uh, originally there was this ethnophilia that was being cultivated by the uh, Soviet authorities. But as you rightly mentioned, Julia, this turned in uh, after 1936 with the policies that then emphasized more the second step of the assimilation that would uh, kind of require people to become Soviet citizens. And that was understood at this stage as more Russification. Yeah, at the very beginning of the Soviet project, there was no this uh, equity between Soviet and Russian. That came somehow later, when becoming loyal to the Soviet regime or becoming Soviet included or incorporated the idea of speaking Russian, for instance, and adopting it as a first uh, language, which is an interesting historical lesson, I think, of how, like the first at least decade of the Soviet Union, gives us an interesting example how the issues of universality and particularity were sort of conflicted, and how Bolsheviks at least tried to find some, let's call it, dialectical solutions to this problem. How to build socialism, which is a universalist idea, but take into account all these particularities, not only cultural particularities, but also uh, the differences of experience. So how, for instance, to incorporate in the new project people who were previously oppressors and who were seen as oppressors and those who were oppressed. So how to sort of acknowledge the difference of these experiences? What kind of sort of Soviet version of affirmative action could have been realized? So that was just 
the process of the first, let's say, 15 years, after which uh, this assimilatory tendency, russification, this more, I would say, essentialist approach to understanding of the Soviet socialist subjectivity became dominant. Following on from from there, I mean, a lot of these processes, you know, we talked about 1936, and obviously that's that's the point where the the Stalinist purges really kick in very strongly. How much was Kyrgyzia, and particularly the arts, how much were they affected by the the Stalinist purges and changes in Soviet cultural policy? 1936 is interesting for Kyrgyzstan, because on one hand, that was the end of the revolutionary... 15 years, so to say. But the 1936 culminated in December with the, with the passing of the new Soviet constitution, which somehow put on hold the revolutionary process by declaring the Soviet Union not the state of uh, workers and peasants, but, you know, as a almost bourgeois state of citizens. But it also, at the same time, the 1936 was the year when Kyrgyzstan obtained finally the status of the Soviet Republic. So it was a very strange year in in this respect, especially if you read the newspapers, for instance. So the red thread of of that period is um, the Stalinist constitution. That was also the year when the abortion legislation was introduced, when after again, like 15 years of liberal policy in in gender and sexual relations, war stop. Uh, so the abortion legislation was really promoted in the newspapers. There was also civil war in Spain that the Soviet Union supported. And yeah, and the acquiring of the status of the of the Kyrgyz Republic. So it's, it's an interesting period, which also was a 20th anniversary of the 1916 uprising, which motivated a lot of anti-colonial discourse in the newspapers. That was a really interesting year in itself in Kyrgyzstan, very controversial. And the purges didn't start yet in 1936. So there was the, just anticipation. The full effect of the Stalinist policy was felt in Kyrgyzstan as well as across the entire Soviet Union in 1937-1938. Like a lot of people who were involved in organizing events around the 20th anniversary of 1916 uprising, the leaders of, of the Communist Party, the government, then they were purged in 1937. The victims of the purges in terms of art was a Hungarian artist, Laszlo Mesarosh, who was a Hungarian communist and sculptor who came to Frunze on the call for proletarian internationalism. He was also very much connected with this Czechoslovakian cooperative Interhelpo that I mentioned earlier. There was also an artist, Kasatkin, was also an active participant of this 1936 exhibition and other efforts in art was also, then it was discovered that he was a clandestine socialist, uh, social revolutionary, and he was purged. And I think, I mean, reading like historical documents, like looking at the newspapers, looking through the archives, you see a very significant shift of moods, shift of spirit, I would say, from anticipation, and a revolutionary kind of uplifting to this very paranoid atmosphere. I wondered if we could give a very, very quick discussion of the period after Stalin's death in 1953. 
through to the end of the Soviet Union, I was particularly struck when I visited Bishkek by how much of the city uh, was built in the 1970s and 1980s, so in the last 15 years or, or so in particular before the, the fall of the Soviet Union. So I wonder what the second half of the USSR was, was, was like in, in the region. We can probably identify more than two kind of periods in, in the Soviet history. In Kyrgyzstan, definitely destalinization is, is a, a major watershed. And in terms of Bishkek's development, uh, definitely that's, that's a significant moment with Khrushchev's policy for the mass construction of uh, housing. So Stab also had a project uh, about Bishkek's utopian history. So Interhelpo is one of the stories that uh, was developed there under the rubric of international proletarian internationalism. But there was also a story of this vision of a socialist city and how it's reflected in, in Bishkek's landscape. Julia, you, you stayed in a like a typical Soviet micro district. Yeah. So that was kind of a case study of a micro district as, as kind of a microcosm of this socialist urban planning with uh, you know the certain logic to organ organization of space that required uh, basically universal access to all the services and kind of goods <laughs> all, all, all the cultural riches that city life has to offer the resources that are necessary for good socialist living including the environment including you know the green spaces uh, yeah, including access to kindergartens and schools and, and polyclinics. So, yeah, a lot of Bishkek's territory in the south is, is, is these uh, micro-districts that started being built on a massive scale in 1960s. It's interesting with this case of yeah. micro-district today. I mean, I'm teaching urban sociology, and with my students, we are reading some feminist texts on urban planning. And basically, there is a sort of set of criteria that make urban space pro-feminist or feminist or like friendly to women. A lot of feminist architects, urbanists and uh, social scholars would agree on the key characteristics of how this urban space should look like. And if you look at the Soviet microdistrics, we would find all of this. Like the feminists would advocate for apartments rather than uh, one family houses. They would uh, insist on the necessity of having socialized childcare and services around in a walking distance. The necessity and importance of public space so that you can leave actually the confinement of your apartment. And it's interesting that the, all the micro districts sort of had all these characteristics, but I would hesitate to call them feminist <laughs> or to call the Soviet life experience for women totally emancipated. That's an interesting sort of dialectics. Yeah, there was this, especially if we look at the American feminists who tried to fight against this uh, suburbanization sort of tendency in the 1960s, 1970s, with, you know, building of this one store, you know, townhouses where women had to be confined and, you know, do the housework. Like in the Soviet Union, the infrastructure for emancipation was there. But the emancipation itself probably didn't happen. That's an interesting and important contradiction. George, you, you've said elsewhere that you feel that in studies of Kyrgyzia during the Soviet period, 
the actual experience of people living in Kyrgyzia has been kind of elided. And you've talked about the idea of emancipation without a subject. Uh, I wondered if you'd like to expand on that at all. Yeah, I think that's what probably one of the biggest revelation of our efforts to come up or to approach the Soviet history critically in, in Central Asia and in Kyrgyzstan in particular, trying to weigh exactly these two things, like the intention and the outcome and the experience in between. And it seemed that the intention was very often emancipat emancipatory, but the execution was not like that. i just give you an example, because I did, I had the chance this year to work in the archives and to read through the, through the documents and, uh, and the articles. Like the example with this, 20s, with this 1916 uprising, and it's sort of commemoration, the 20th anniversary in 1936, which was a very important historical event, very important for people, because in 1936, there were still survivors of the, of the uprising, uh, uprising and the rebels. And it was a, the, the commemoration was on, conducted on a very high political level, like 20,000 people were gathered for the rally in uh, there was this exhibition which also attracted about 15, 20,000 people. But if you look, if you read through the newspaper, there was, you would really would hear the voices from the people themselves. That would always be a version that fit some other bigger agenda that people probably would not be themselves fully aware of. So this feeling, sometimes it's not always very tangible, but there is something that lays or goes beyond what some goals and purposes that precede the experience and the trauma and bodily experience of the people. So it created this interesting subjectivity. On one hand, the idea was to subjectivize the people, but not to to a full extent. Mm -hmm. I would say, like the same happened with women. Like all this infrastructure was there, but nobody, for instance, challenged the very idea that housework should be divided between men and women. That it's not just enough to come up to give the infrastructure to organize this even urban space, to acknowledge that there is some housework done women and made easier for women but the very idea that the housework should be divided between men and women and that women should take probably a leading role in discussing this issue was not there so that's where we somehow can pass this emancipation without a subject that there was an emancipatory intention but there was no this full participation, or at least participation was probably much more limited than it should be. I'd like to talk about the end of the Soviet period now. Kyrgyzstan has not, or at least Bishkek has not, you know, decommunized in the same way as notably Ukraine has been doing so very aggressively, but also kind of Georgia and some of the Western former Soviet republics. And I know that one of the explanations, the official explanations for this was the uh, expense of doing so. But I think it was also a philosophical decision. I really noted in, uh, in Bishkek, obviously, as I said earlier, a lot of the architecture is from the 70s and 80s, the surviving architecture. A lot of the city was planned and built in the interwar period. So architecturally decommunizing Bishkek is quite difficult. But... You know, also the statue of Lenin was just moved from the renamed Lenin Square, uh, which became Alatu Square, and the statue of Lenin was just moved to the back of the square and can still find statues of Marx and Engels, even Felix Chazinsky, the head of the Cheka. All of these monuments are still present in, um, in Bishkek. So I wondered if you would like to talk a bit about uh, why 
Bishkek in particular has not decommunized in the same way as certain other former Soviet cities and how this has affected the cultural landscape? Kyrgyzstan, uh, like other Central Asian states, they were launched into independence in, in a way that they, they, they were quite reluctant yeah. um, to become independent. So you cited this referendum at the end of the Soviet Union where uh, all of the Central Asian Republic voted uh, overwhelmingly in support of uh, preserving some sort of a union, right? So there were discussions about what kind of union can it be, how can the terms of the union be uh, renegotiated, yet uh, the Central Asian states, together with Belarus, formed this bloc that was supporting Gorbachev in the attempt to preserve the union. This was, uh, of course, in stark difference with the Baltic states of Ukraine or Georgia. Yet, once the independence was acquired, there were different uh, approaches in the Central Asian, in the different uh, Central Asian states, to the historical memory and uh, what was considered heritage that was uh, worth preserving and being proud of. So, in, in Uzbekistan, very much went through this decommunization process. Statues were removed, metro stations renamed and, and uh, refurbished, uh, street names changed, uh, etc. And to a different extent, that that happened also in, in other countries. Histories were rewritten to support a particular narrative. This, of course, happened to some extent in Kyrgyzstan as well. But you are very perceptive in, in your interpretation of, of that Soviet history was not completely dismissed. And it was actually a conscious policy under Akayev, who said that, you know, this is part of our history, so we're not going to just, you know, dismiss it and, and pretend that it didn't happen. Uh, because uh, if it were not for the Soviet Union, we would never become a country. Um, but yeah, like this, this uh, compromise kind of happened through not obliteration, but displacement and moving to a different register. The statue would not be completely removed, but it would be moved to <laughs> to the back. <laughs> Some sort of detour, um, you yeah. know, it's just like, for instance, this Felix Dzerzhinsky monument that uh, I sort of recently discovered, I mean, I discovered it long ago, which is quite central, but also in a very kind of, in a corner, that it doesn't attract much attention. So this idea of keeping the monuments very, like in central locations, not placing them in one park, that would be the experience of some countries, but displacing them a little bit. That that's creates an interesting I think, dynamic and experience in Bishkek. By the Soviet legacy, the Soviet experience, it's, it's always very close to the mainstream. Absolutely, and that was very noticeable when I was, was in Bishkek. This legacy of communism, the Soviet period, is it largely aesthetic? You know, is it largely in this these monuments and the architecture? And is it covering over maybe a kind of aggressive neoliberalization of the economy? Well, I think it does. I think that Kyrgyzstan is one of the most neoliberalized economies and societies, even compared to neighboring Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan. Kyrgyz citizens cannot rely on any social security. Everything from healthcare to education is commercialized, like you cannot rely on any basic services. Same like, for instance, 
Now there is a big debate about uh, pension reform in Russia with the increase of tire age of retirement. But the, the age was increased many years ago, and it's uh, 65, 53 and uh, 58, 3 for men and 58 for women. And the, the pensions, they are so miserable that, of course, nobody can seriously rely on them. So there is, of course, an aggressive uh, also urban politics proclaimed under the slogans of development like the widening of the roads, which leads to the destruction of the public space, of trees in Bishkek. I think that sometimes this commitment, this delicate dances around the Soviet legacy in the aesthetic here, actually hides that of neoliberalization and marketization of social life in Kyrgyzstan. I'd like to start talking now, and in particular bring in some of the work that both of you did with the School of Theory and Activism in Bishkek. I mean, I'd like to talk a bit about how contemporary artists and thinkers in Kyrgyzstan have drawn on this Soviet past, how they've dealt with the more problems of reactionary nostalgia, how they've used this past to try to build a compelling vision of the future. And I'd particularly like to talk about your film Queer in Space, which, uh, which you made a few years ago. Yeah, that was, Mahir already mentioned this project about Bishkek. We actually wanted to somehow preserve the Soviet history, but with this very strong critical and political element. How we can use the history and aesthetics to sort of actualize its critical potential, rather than how it's used by the, the dominant regime as something that basically hides capitalist processes. And then it, thinking about this, we also wanted to talk about the gender utopia or feminist utopia, or queer utopia, if you may, that was part of the Soviet project somehow. The promise that all the oppressions will be overcome, including the oppression of sex. And we couldn't find real material traces of that effort, at least in Frunze, in, in Bishkek. This is how the idea of this Kalantai commune, this imagined community of dreamers, of communists, of queers, came about. Just. Um, I don't know if we should say it was a fictional community. I mean, at least when we just made a film and created the story, we didn't announce that it was fictional. We wanted to play with this idea of even cultural shock when people are presenting something that looks very trustworthy. I mean, we try to make it trustworthy. Something that also predicts a very general idea of how what the Soviet experience was and see and maybe initiate a discussion. Why, first of all, we have these assumptions about the Soviet experience. If I may add on the pace aspect of it, uh, that's also kind of a continuation of that project. People do not think of Pakistan as uh, a country which participated in exploration of space, but it did. All the scientific equipment that was used for exploration of space and, and for doing space research uh, in the Soviet Union was actually designed and created here in Frunze, in Bishkek. Another anthology that published the concepts of the Soviet uh, in Central Asia, I wrote about this institution that existed here from um, mid-60s till very much, uh, very recently actually, so they, uh, I mean, they, they worked in the space research till maybe mid-2000s, 
then they had to switch to other activities because they were getting orders. But yeah, this is also part of Kyrgyz history that we were part of this socialist experiment, we were part of uh, space exploration, and that's something that does not get recognized a lot or being forgotten. There is an initiative on the side of a media outlet, uh, an independent, and it's, it's true, it's independent. They are not owned by any corporation and they don't get much from the commercial placement. A company called Cluop, they initiated this uh, school of satellites construction for girls. And that will be a very basic small cubic uh, satellite that they will create, print on the 3D printer and uh, send to space. So they brand it as a first ever Kyrgyz Sputnik or Kyrgyz satellite. And it's interesting that that's probably true if we call it a, the, the first Kyrgyz satellite since independence. But the first Kyrgyz satellite was sent to space in 1957 and it is known as Sputnik. And yes, that was the first Kazakh and the first Tajik and the first Uzbek and the first Ukrainian and the first Belarusian, <laughs> Georgian, Armenian and they, I can count 15, <laughs> 15 republics. And that's how we don't think about Soviet Union. There is always this element of alienation from something that was ours. Yes, shared with others, but that was Kyrgyz. Soviet yeah. is not Russian, Soviet is also Kyrgyz. And that's important because I think that when we just preserve these aesthetic elements, this sort of facade, without really making this deep connection and claim for the legacy, that it was not just part of our history, that was the part of the history which we contributed to, which we shaped. It's not just the memory of, you know, some time that, that we happened to be part of it. We were part of it, we were building this uh, socialist project as well. We, we paid the price and we can claim the right to the legacy. So I wanted to talk a little more about Queer in Space, which which is a film that I found very striking. I was introduced to the film by friend of the show, someone else you've met, a very close friend of mine, Owen Hathaly, who recommended the film to me. And I watched it and I, you know, I found the archival material presented, you know, very interesting. But there was a kind of realisation I had watching the film that this the specifics of this history almost felt too good to be true. And I recognised a technique I've used in my own work about like transgender history, which I've, I've done through fiction. Of course, I presented one of these stories with the two of you in, in Bishkek earlier this year, where there's a need to kind of, you're aware that all of these, these historical strands exist, but the kind of central thread that would pull them all together, you maybe have to invent to make all the history around it kind of do the thing you want it to. So I really kind of uh, recognised kind of kindred spirit in that work and you know, in your kind of approach. And I've been very interested in a lot of the activism and the art and the theory that's been coming out of Bishkek, having been twice and engaged with the LGBT community and the art community in different ways. I mean, I wondered if you'd like to talk more about queer cultural scene in Bishkek in particular that I know you've both been involved with helping to build. Um, Mahira, I'd love to talk more about the Weird Sisters fan scene that you've worked on with Oksana Shatilova, who's also been involved with STAB quite a lot. Yeah, so... With Sisters was a queer feminist zine, and we had six issues altogether dedicated to all sorts of themes. So we started with kind of like a feminist FAQ, the frequently asked questions, uh, 
that the sexist usually put forward. What about the army? What about chivalry and, and good manners? And then, yeah, we, we have discussions about what body positivity might mean. What does feminist future look like? So it, it, it kind of went in parallel, I, I would say, with the, the things that Stab was doing. And it was supported by Stab. There was a lot of intersection, basically, between the Weird Sisters as a kind of a side project and the activities that the institution was undertaking. It's hard to tell how much this has become a part of a kind of a queer culture scene in Bishkek, though. I mean, it was a very productive protest for all the involved, but it didn't have a wide enough cultural effect. So this makes me think of other things that can be done um, of this sort. So I, for instance, conducted like zine-making workshops in the community center of Labris, uh, the LGBT organization that I work with, that we both work with, Georgi and I. We created, for instance, some uh, zines for uh, Lesbian Visibility Day. And the fair that was held for the 17th of May, the Idaho, the International Day Against uh, Homophobia, Transphobia. There was a fair and we had a stall where I talked about zine making and then Georgi talked about, you know, what does it mean to be a queer communist? Yeah, we are kind of trying to develop all, all these other ways of doing this kind of leftist outreach in the queer community uh, or feminist outreach in the queer community. So we, we have a project that we, we, we've dreamt up that we hope to put into action uh, in the coming year that would bring um, kind of yeah, this social justice or leftist agenda into the queer activism adventure. I think this, this what you pointed also about the queer in space, that was a very also intellectual, maybe theoretical also attempt on constructing and making visible histories that are oppressed, repressed. I kind of appreciate that you notice the similarity with your because I think it's important that, and this is probably what can be said about our efforts in Stab, that probably without our intention, but our sort of cultural and artistic efforts and in, in, in bringing or doing all this queer projects, they were probably more wider popular and they were received better outside of Kyrgyzstan, which which probably is not a bad thing. That was the way to connect the local cultural and the queer scene with uh, the rest of the world. And I want you also to notice that how fiction works for us. For, for example, of course, uh, as you said, sometimes the facts are there, but they are so dispersed. It's not possible to connect all of them into some coherent narrative without fictionizing it. But actually, then there is another sort of level as well. When you do this, when you create this fictional, let's call it locale or fictional point, which you can then view the history, then you actually become able to identify certain things that remained invisible. That happened to us, for example, after we produced this queer in space film and the idea of commune and synthesizing all these little facts into, into this big fiction. Actually, after that, we did find things that were real and true. So, for instance, uh, first sort of LGBT community in Leningrad, the gay, lab gay laboratory, 
which was also kind of communist leaning, for example, and that sort of remained invisible to us and to many others. Or recently, a colleague and friend of ours who is featured in the film actually did find a very interesting document, an anti-psychiatry anti manifesto written by a patient of the mental health hospital in Frunze with a really strong anti-capitalist, communist, Leninist critique of the Soviet social. Like the document in many ways echoes the fictional manifesto of Kalantai Commune, with the exception of its queer homosexuality, maybe transgender elements that we included in our text, but the idea that the Soviet Union is the failed state of the workers, or the state that betrayed the revolution, basically that's an elitist state with a serious gap between the ruling elite and the masses. That sentiment that we also wanted to uh, include, that was there in an actually document. Otherwise, would also probably be left unnoticed. So it's, it's, it's kind of an important and dialectical effort of fictionizing, but then fiction helps us to identify true history as well. It's not even that I want to the hierarchy between, between fiction and truth, but it's kind of a more complex process. And um, yeah, we feel that probably um, we, we still need to work more and maybe in a slightly different way to make this sort of discussion and then sensitivity more wider receptive within the very diverse and dynamic like LGBT community in, in Bishkek. I would like to discuss another piece of your work with Oksana Shatilova, which has been published online in English, which is an essay called Against Simple Answers, where you're kind of engaging with the work of the Soviet Marxist pedagogue and philosopher Evel Lilienkov, um, who worked with blind, deaf, mute children near Moscow in the 1960s, 1970s. You know, from a Western perspective, it's quite easy, and I, I say easy not as a good thing, to kind of engage with queer cultures in other parts of the world and see the kind of influence of, you know, kind of Anglo-American in particular, queer and, and feminist writers and thinkers and activists. You know, in this essay, you're building a quite kind of anti-essentialist approach to LGBTQI issues through the study of, of Ilyenkov. And I wondered if you'd like to maybe talk a bit more to our listeners about that essay, which, which we will share with the show. Yeah, the, this essay, I mean, uh, worked really a lot on this, and, the, and it probably synthesized at the time when it was published. Our approach and also feeling, maybe subjective, of tendencies within the leftist and uh, LGBT and feminist movement, not only in Kyrgyzstan or Central Asia space, but maybe wider in the world, with this tendency to essentialize identity. And actually, with even but these discussions, they they, 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 they continue even even today. And with uh, with also in an imposition of a very particular image So, for instance, there is thing that drives me crazy, and that the activists use it widely here. We would somehow divert from a very sort of prescriptive way of being a gay or a lesbian or a trans person would immediately be. Uh, labeled as someone with internalized homophobia or internalized transphobia. 
and it's always absolutely unclear what is meant by this. What you should really do not to be homophobic. Like, should you? What kind of practices should you engage to be properly gay? I always have this problem with myself. I mean, I'm always not identified as a gay person. My gayness is always questioned within the community. But it happens to many, many other people. I mean, if you don't want to discuss something about your sexual life, then, or if you don't want to come, to come out to every person around you, or if you are critical about certain aspects of gay life, or if you are not, if you really want to sustain several sort of persona of your own, yeah, one of which can be gay and the other one can be straight or whatever, yeah, you immediately kind of labeled as being this, as someone who internalized homophobia. That's an interesting, also, on one hand, there is this essentialist idea of uh, being born or being true certain uh, identity and then there is another element and more subtle it's how the responsibility from societal level is shifted to individual so we no longer view homophobia as a kind of social situation with multiple effects on an individual which has to deal with this yeah consciously or unconsciously but as an individual responsibility be truthful to some essentialist canon of how to be gay, lesbian, or trans person. It's an interesting political kind of liberal idea being played. Yeah, You have to fight your internalized homophobia. But for what reason? Why? I think all this, this kind of thinking, and, and it's a big part of the activism, and it's a big part of what is now being called left in a very broad sense, kind of mainstream movement, has a political root, political motivation, which I think people like, or thinkers, philosophers like Evel Tilienkov, who was a radical anti-essentialist, a radical constructivist, if I may, but he would, I, I would rather say, a radical dialectical materialist, who would see that our life, our experience, our bodies, who we are, is an effect of social conditions, of social reality in which we live. And as such, the social reality is never given. It's always under the process of construction, under the process of building. So actually, the question who we are should not be addressed to us as individuals. It should be addressed to us as society. What kind of social environment we want to create and build that would enable individuals be the way we imagine them, not homophobic, not being internally homophobic, if, if, if we may. That's not a question of individual of struggle. That's a collective political thing that has to be discussed. And th that what we somehow wanted by, by, by bringing probably a little bit artificially this idea of queer theory and uh, Soviet Marxism, and we wanted to sort of initiate this discussion. And I think that actually the potential of this Soviet Marxism is still not fully discovered and not fully understood for contemporary political process. Like, for instance, the, the very idea of identity, that for political action we need to share something initially, is sort of dominating, while I think that it's much more promising and much more important to understand that 
commonality or collectivity is not something to be discovered, but something to be constructed, to be built in a joint effort. And that's, I think, um, again, something that uh, Ilyenkov can help us probably better, better, better understand. I'd like to just ask you a little bit about the group who illustrated the English version of this essay that's online, Metagalactica. The essay is accompanied by an artwork of theirs called Queer City from, from last year. Uh, this is like an anonymous art group of activists and art, uh, architects. It's described as their futuristic projects advocate struggles against all forms of oppression. They use a number of different media, video, photos, illustrations, performance. And in these, the postcards that accompany the essay, everyday urban spaces of Bishkek kind of turn into this kind of, well, this, this queer city of the title. They relate to the history of the LGBT movement in Bishkek in the year 2047. These pictures are very interesting. We'll will send out the essay along with the programme. But I wondered if you'd like to maybe talk about this and talk about how it ties into the the science fiction anthology um, that was recently released of um, kind of Kyrgyz queer science fiction that I know you've both been involved with. Yeah, this Metagalactic, it's uh, the project, a duo, that was formed during one of our educational programmes in Stadt. Like for two or three years in a row, we ran these uh, programmes in, in, in autumn. And this one was called uh, Against Nature. See, we always like this against, against simple answers. <laughs> against, against nature, uh, queer science fiction art. And I think that this, 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 uh, this postcard project was also developed under the influence of an artist, Evgeny Fix, is a, a Russian-born, New York-based queer artist who actually does a lot of work on documenting and uh, the Soviet queer history and the the, the, the the Soviet queer experience. And he was one of the, he, he, he gave a masterclass, uh, a workshop uh, during the school. I think that somehow influenced the idea of Metagalactica and their approach, which they, of course, sort of executed in their own way and fashion. And they collected information with, from different sources about important places in Bishkek related to queer history and try to present them in this very kind of weird, trashy maybe, but also very futuristic way. And this this project, I think, was very much uh, appreciated uh, by the community. I think it was really sort of important shifting point for many, at least within the activist field, that the history matters, that we should not start anew every day. There is some history that there was some struggle before us, and uh, that we benefit from that struggle, and that struggle had to be has to be remembered. And probably the form of this project, which was sort of very accessible, also played a role. I especially like the postcard with the Frunze Planetarium, which is now in ruins, but it had an interesting history. So it, for once, it was a place to explore the space. And then it was it hosted the first queer bar, the first LGBT club in, in Bishkek for, for some time. And it was the space where a lot of people explored their sexuality for the first time. So it was the interesting, interesting connection. I'd like to move the discussion on now. You know, at the top of the show, I talked about the 2014 propaganda bill, direct copy of the Russian bill against gay propaganda that was the thing that first brought me to Bishkek and brought me in touch with uh, Labris, the LGBT organisation that we talked about earlier. The bill was 
initially passed in its first reading in the Kyrgyz parliament by 79 votes to six. The one Kyrgyz deputy who stood up and said, no, this law is just morally wrong and we shouldn't be doing it, was subject to homophobic abuse in the parliament and in the Kyrgyz press. But the bill went to a second reading and was again comfortably passed. Uh, And then it got held up in the Kyrgyz parliament. Um, It was actually recommended for another second reading rather than on a third and final reading, which is the usual protocol. I wrote a piece recently for uh, Open Democracy with which I spoke to Mahira and some others at Labris about the the fact that the bill, kind of in limbo, it remains on the statute books, it hasn't been passed. But of course, it has had quite a strong effect on just the way LGBT people are treated by the press and by the police and other institutions and just the public in Kyrgyzstan. So I wonder if we could maybe talk a bit about the, specifically the cultural effects of that bill, you know, how it's affected the cultural scene, and particularly this kind of queer cultural scene in in. Kyrgyzstan and Bishkek. Yeah, so we talked about how this bill uh, was copied and pasted from the uh, Russian bill that was adopted in 2013. There was a study done by sociologist Alexander Kandakov on the effects that the Russian bill has had on LGBT people in, in Russia. So it's been five years. In, in this um, paper that uh, was published last year, I believe, they looked at hate crimes against LGBTQ people in, in Russia. And it, it's sort of based on the most conservative uh, estimate because it's based on the uh, court cases out of all the uh, incidents, only f- very few actually get to the court. So even by those most conservatives of the estimates, the hate crimes against LGBTQ people have increased several fold. And uh, and a lot of these crimes are, are not, uh, strictly speaking, hate crimes, but are the kind of crimes that are opportunistic because the, the criminals see LGBTQ people as an easy target, as people who have no recourse to justice, who are unlikely to report to the police for the fear of being exposed sexual, transgender, etc. Similarly, we have observed, even though the law has not passed in Kyrgyzstan, there's been a shift in, there has been this mental shift, a license to discriminate from the state, to uh, designate a certain social group as free, um, kind of, you know, a a social group that can be subjected to. So because of this uh, kind of ideological shift, there are actually some police officers who have targeted LGBTQ people and, and told them that, you know, you're a criminal. Whether they do this kind of unknowingly or deliberately, yeah, uh, because not everyone is informed well, right? So basically, yeah, there is anecdotal evidence uh, that there's been a rise in violence, in, in um, persecution, in harassment, most notably by the police but also kind of this type of opportunistic crime. People extort money. Generally, the tone of the media coverage has become more hostile. Visible effects of this law, even without that. Both of you are involved with Labris, so this LGBT organisation that was active in, in 2014 and then has you know been kind of frequently attacked since since the bill was introduced to Parliament. 
has had to operate more secretly at different points over the last four years and now has more of an online presence again but you know is still operating in this very oppressive atmosphere and Georgie when I've spoken to you you've talked about moving away from art towards more direct activism so I wonder if I could talk to both of you about why do this when I was in Bishkek in 2014 I spent a lot of time with Sinat who I mentioned at the top of the show who is one of the contributors to the um, queer science fiction anthology will share that piece as well and you know she was talking a lot about this tension between wanting to make art and film but also feeling that the political situation was so bad uh, especially for LGBT people that she felt she had little choice but to work directly you know in kind of political activism. I wonder if we could maybe just kind of conclude the show by talking about this kind of tension you know maybe if you feel that kind of queer and leftist art could continue to contribute to a kind of positive political project in in Kyrgyzstan. Like in my case, it's a mixture probably of subjective factors and subjective reasons with maybe more general sensitivity to what is going on in in the world in general and what kind of means of participation or meaningful participation in in social and political life are are available uh, for us. like we started Stop in 2012, my colleague, my and, and uh, comrade uh, Aksana and I, we were moving from really very sort of straightforward artistic careers to more political ones through all these years, from establishing Stop and through the time when it was in operation. So, in a way, it's kind of a logical con- con- sort of conclusion to to leave the domain of art fully because we were drifting in this direction anyway. But we also always try to sort of stick to it. I remember that one of our first manifestos said something like, art is our mother tongue or something like this. That something, the language that we can, the only language we can speak. Uh, but that was in 2012. And since then many things changed for me personally. I learned some other languages too. The language of political activism, for instance. I wasn't part of LGBT movement before I'm moved to Bishkek and where I met people I, I and I understood that I can master this language too and this language maybe sometimes talks more sharply to the challenges with which uh, I have to deal. So I think that art is not the only language, though I think it's still important and important for me and important I think politically as well. The limits of artistic activism, the limits of political art, the limits of being political in aesthetic way are also becoming more and more apparent. It's, I don't want to also trivialize it and say that okay, there is just this urgency and we need to leave the museums, galleries, I don't know, thinking process, intellectual things, artistic things, and just get out on the streets. Though sometimes I feel that's what needs to be done at the same time. Because the urgency is there and the urgency is not necessarily right in your place, like in, in Bishkek or Kyrgyzstan, for example, this bill. Uh, why why was it put on hold? It's not, I mean, of course, we can attribute some achievement to ourselves, and I was also campaigning a lot in, in order to stop this, but it was put on hold just because in Russia, the political climate changed, and okay, this, the bill in Russia is still there, but uh, gays and lesbians and trans people are no longer the biggest enemy. There are others, 
So the political rhetoric of the Russian television that is widely watched here in Kyrgyzstan changed. And uh, probably the Kyrgyz deputies stopped getting direct orders from Kremlin or wherever they get them about what they should do in their country. And then the, the life of all you know, LGBT people in Kyrgyzstan suddenly changed. We were granted this uh, seeming freedom because the, the, the bill was put on hold. You see, this, this politics yeah, is there. And I don't know if art is the means that we should engage with when we, when we understand how these things work. Probably we should uh, direct our efforts at bringing and building some transnational, transborder solidarity against these authoritarian neo-colonial political regimes that are emerging in Russia, in, in the United States, in the UK, and across Europe, and in Turkey, in Hungary, in Uganda. In Uganda. From my end, I just wanted to add that I don't come from the art world. I'm kind of, yeah, I'm based in academic world mostly. So for me, it's also been um, a bit of a challenge, you know, trying to reconcile kind of the demands of my and the kind of expectations that are there, in, for instance, in terms of publishing, what kind of research is seen as rigorous, valid, and and what I think is necessary at the moment, what needs to be published, and trying to find alternative avenues for this type of public statements and, and engagement. And also, because I come from the international relations background, I can also see kind of the global trend. So we have sort of a, a given great weight to the Russian influence in the origins of the bill, but we must also recognize that it's part of a global politics, yeah, of conservative shift. Yeah, so we know for a fact that the bill in Russia was promoted just like the the similar homophobic laws were promoted in, in Uganda by various Protestant pastors and international organizations like Family First, and then there's like a an alliance of conservative forces that work together trying to undermine institutions like the United Nations, you know, our international legal regimes and instruments that exist to basically do everything in their power to take away rights from women and LGBTQ people. So it's, it's, it's not only like the Russian politicians that are at work here, but also, yeah, like Lively, a pastor who wrote a book called Pink Svastika, and he was also running for um, Congress, I think, uh, recently in the States. So, yeah, other type of transnational movements and organizations. For me, uh, I have to try and think, what can I do with, with the language that I speak and the skills that I have? So, uh, for instance, here with Labris on a research project on uh, LGBTQ uh, sexualities and sexual lives uh, in Bishkek, in Kyrgyzstan. At least, even though this type of work might not count in my main line of work, politically very important to engage uh, in this type of research and, and uh, intellectual activities. I think there is one very important lesson maybe that to be learned from the avant-garde art and coming back to the moment when uh, neither me nor Mahira, there is no stop. 
no, there's no this school of Syrian activism in Bishkek, and we moved to more sort of direct activism. But there's one thing that I think is very consistent and very characteristic of avant-gardist in, in is subversion, and sometimes self-subversion. The idea that you really need to subvert something that contributes to your individual interest, for something that can actually contribute to the to the collective. And I think that maybe at least I personally go through this idea that now today not artistic means, not artistic career is something that can bring us political and collective gains, but something more. And maybe that's not even politics done in Kyrgyzstan. Maybe what is more important, what is more should be in the agenda is a, an effort to build new international and use you know, cross-national, transnational solidarity against um, uh. authoritarianism and neoliberalism, because you know, the artistic world, the global world, creates this very sort of false idea of solidarity. We can mingle together in all these global spaces, like biennales, uh, different events, uh, and have this idea that. The very false idea of solidarity because then we go back to our places to our countries uh, where we have to deal with you know daily issues with being separated from this we also I mean I'm I'm a little bit tired of all these exchanges in the bar so I don't know people come to Bishkek about how it how we share things a lot how we think the same about political situation how we should fight together and then nothing happens mm -hmm. like uh, we still are confined in our nationalist ideas. And we still kind of try to play by the rules of national nation state, while the politics is already different. And uh, the influences, as Mahira just showed, about this this, this entire conservative uh, shift that encompasses you know, all our countries, very difficult to find the root you know, of it while the left is still sort of confined in this idea of uh, you know nation state parliamentary process uh, uh, and there is no a true a global leftist solidarity that would respond to the challenges adequately while the right wing is doing that just perfectly and even though you may see there are differences between Putin and Trump but basically these are the debates the, the factions within one party, that's like that, you know, understanding being probably very trivial, too general, etc., still makes me feel very skeptical about doing some art house movie, for instance. <laughs> Though I would love to, probably, but... Okay, I think we're going to have to conclude the discussion there, sadly, on a, a rather pessimistic note. I feel that... Um, there's an awful lot for us to to think about here and i think your point about international leftist activist solidarity is a very good one um and i hope a lot of our listeners who are maybe more interested in the arts um that gives them something to to think about as well georgia mahira like thank you so so much for for joining me um it was a real pleasure to meet you in bishkek earlier this year and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you now listeners uh we will be back on Resonance FM in our usual slot, Monday afternoons, 2 to 3 p.m., 104.4 FM or at resonancefm.com. Just remains for me to sign off and say, Georgia and Mahira, thank you very much. Thanks thank you, Juliet. Bye-bye.